Center podcast listeners, glad to be with you again. Um, we are currently uh, moving through a series which organizes itself around this driving question, how do we live our lives if we truly believe Christ is not yet done with the world um, or the people in it? Or uh, what have we made of our expectancy? How do we live our lives if we truly believe that Christ is not yet done with this world or the people in it? And um, I'm self-aware that, um, well, at least the listeners, I would assume most of the listeners are, um, are confessing, uh, confessing Christians. Um, however, one of the kind of implications of this driving question and this short series is, um, that while we might know something, um, affirm something, um, at a cognitive level, as a claim, um, embodying that thing is true, qualitatively experiencing that thing is true, uh, is, is a very different kind of thing. And, uh, and it's, it's, it's my, my position that this kind of hope that the world is going somewhere, humanity is going somewhere, that the way of Jesus ultimately becomes what the universe looks like is something that really can bring tremendous joy and comfort and peace, but also can activate and, um, and motivate us to go out and, and do important and good work across um, expertise, across discipline, and so on. Well, uh, the series so far has covered uh, quite a bit of ground, really. Um, the first week was uh, developing an ethical grammar, uh, which flows from a fundamental belief that there is something more to the universe, that it is going somewhere. Uh, the second week, we focused uh, on the secular constructs of freedom and contrasted those against the Christian picture of freedom. Uh, the third message was essentially a picture of uh, some essential ways to think about, to conceive of the Trinitarian uh, God and how that shapes the world that we're in. And uh, this week, um, we are going to be looking at our experience of God in the natural world, um, what the, ex the uh, Trinitarian experience of the divine looks like, uh, what it means to experience Trinity in the natural world. And um, maybe right away, it's worth noting that uh, by natural world, I'm really going to have kind of two things in mind. On the one hand, um, we're talking about, we're talking about the outdoors. We're talking about the hiking trail. We're talking about, um, you know, being in the kayak, being on the bicycle. We're talking about being in nature and I would expand that to include being, you know, the, the life and energy of, of the city, right? Um, the uh, excitement of gathering with people, um, what it is to live in the world, right? Which includes nature and is more than that. But also we're talking about our experience of God in the natural world as in through the material world. So we're speaking of it more broadly as well in, in, the, in that sense. So it's any experience of the material and some of the ways that we might think about or conceive of that. Well, um, the primary resource that I'm using uh, to uh, frame the conversation today, uh, that, well, I suppose there are two. Um, <clears throat> one is uh, the experience of God being consciousness bliss by David Bentley Hart. Um, the other um, is um, some of the work by uh, James K.A. Smith. And I'll reference a few other pieces as we go. But those are, those are two texts that really help frame this, particularly the experience of God by heart. So um, I think that um, this matters because uh, the more we labor to bring attention to our Trinitarian experience of the divine through the material world, through the natural order, the more we work to focus on this and, and offer 
sustained attention to this, I think the greater the likelihood is that we will begin to think about God correctly and therefore to experience God uh, correctly. And, and really all I mean by correctly is um, there are many, there, there are at least, I'd say many, I think there's at least one or two um, very good reasons that people wrestle with um, or, or uh, reject um, a, an amaterial claim, the idea that there's anything outside of, of the material order. But also, I think, uh, particularly like a theistic claim that there is a God. And I, we won't get into those reasons now, the ones that I think hold some weight and are more valid. But, um, but I think it's a shame when people reject the experience of God, reject the claim, a claim that there is a God based on um, wrongheaded or incomplete or usually kind of lazy pictures of, of who God might be and how God might operate. And I, I tend to think that that comes from culture and it comes from upbringing and so on. So it's not really about assigning blame. I just think that if we can think more clearly about the Trinitarian experience of God through the natural world, uh, we're more likely um, to understand how we might expect that God who is being, who is transcendent, who is omnipresent, might reveal himself in the world. Well, let's read Job chapter 12, verses 7 to 12. But I ask the beasts, but ask the beasts and they will teach you. The birds of the heavens and they will tell you. Or the bushes of the earth and they will teach you. And the fish of the sea will declare to you, who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Does not the ear test words as the palate tastes food? Wisdom is with the aged and understanding in length of days. Just to read those first few verses again, but ask the beasts and they will teach you the birds of the heavens, and they will tell you. Or the bushes of the earth, and they will teach you. And the fish of the sea will declare to you, who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? Um, is this really a captivating section in a very uh, interesting chapter, strange chapter? And uh, in, in the book of Job, the wisdom literature of Job. Um, and I, I suppose I would just leave it as an open question. Is this, is this merely poetry? Of course it is poetic, but are we to see these as merely essentially um, metaphors or, or ways of thinking about animals and plants and the fish of the sea? Or is, is this getting at uh, something deeper about, or I should say maybe something more true about our relationship, um, humanity's interconnectedness to uh, nature. The Bible is, in fact, filled with texts which illustrate how the material world and nature itself is a vehicle by which we understand and experience God. Much of this is familiar to anyone who is intended center uh, for any period of time. So, um, again, I'm aware that there are folks who listen that have never um, set foot inside our community or been a part of our community. Um, so, I'm, I, still yet, I'll, I'll, for the most part, breeze by the things that we have landed on as a community over the years. So, as to not be redundant. And in fact, today I'll attempt to um, dig a bit deeper into the truths about the human experience of God through nature. But by way of summary, a quick glance back uh, at texts in addition to Job that should inform the way we think about our role uh, in nature, our role in the material universe. Think about passages in uh, early, early in the uh, in the Torah, passages like Genesis chapter two, where you have Adam, 
you have Adam coming from the Adama, you have human beings, you have humanity coming from the ground or the earth, from mud and dirt and soil, uh, which is important and interesting that um, at once uh, we want to offer, um, we want to recognize that um, human beings carry the Imago Dei, the divine image, um, but also that in some way we it's and again this isn't presented negatively it's presented as something that is good that we also have a very unique um and particular kind of relationship to the earth um to the soil to the world to the bodies that we inhabit and this is considered good it's considered right um it's considered something that is sacred and beautiful it's considered a way to experience joy and pleasure this earthiness is not bad news for adam and eve um however you read that genesis text of course this earthiness this being of the soil of the dust and of the earth is something that is good um james james limberg's important and elsewhere echoed handling of the hebrew hebrew word rada uh, found in Genesis chapter one, Genesis chapter two, it means more than, and again, this is a, this is a survey of what we've already discussed over the years. And I, I'm aware that I'm not presenting new information to most of you, but this is, this word means much more than to merely have dominion over. So when we are, when we have dominion over the earth, this is not about, um, uh, this is not about leveraging power in a callous and abusive way in um, in, in, in a kind of usury through um, it, this is this is rather about preserving it 's about protecting um, it 's about stewardship it, This is us serving a very unique role in the natural order by um, conserving and taking care of uh, the world that we inhabit. The wisdom literature on this this topic, um, on this theme, abound. Um, Psalm 8, uh, Proverbs 8, um, those, pa- the, the, those passages in Job, beginning at chapter 38, God responds to Job uh, from a whirlwind, where, where we see um, these deal with the pleasure God experiences in the natural world. And this is uh, this necessary outworking of his transcendent being. There are also more complex and strange stories. And, um, I forget who first drew my attention to this. It was an article I read and I can't, I can't cite her because I I just don't remember uh, who first pointed this out, but as complicated and as strange and as seemingly there's, there's a lot of depth to the flood, to the flood story. We know that, that the flood narrative is something that persists across, um, many world religions and it's a complex story. It's just, it's a very strange one. Much can be understood through it, I think. And it's uh, it's a hard story to, to really understand. And I, I certainly don't. Uh, I, I have glimpses of in, insight into it and have read people who have had much, many interesting things to say about it. But whatever you make of the horror of this flood story and the strangeness of it, um, it is interesting to note that God forms a new covenant at the end of the flood story and that that covenant is Yes, with humanity, but in fact, it is with every living thing. God forms a covenant uh, in, in, after the flood account in, uh, in Genesis, and this is with every living thing. Our perceived distance from God uh, is often a result of an insistence that God must look a certain way, communicate a certain way, and, com- and communicate on a certain register, and that everything outside of this narrow range of God communicating is something that we reject. And that's something that I think will be useful to unpack in this teaching, and I hope to be helpful by, by doing that. Um, there's a tremendous quote by Alexander von Humboldt, and I'm just getting into Humboldt um, through uh, the book uh, The Invention of Nature by uh, Andrea Wolfe. And Andrea Wolf explores von Humboldt's um, life. He, he was a German um, scientist um, and naturalist. He lived into the middle of the 19th century. 
um, and was this incredibly famous scientist who influenced um, a wide range of uh, of important minds across disciplines, ranging from Darwin to Jefferson to Wordsworth. And uh, Wolf's treatment on Humboldt's work is really a great read called the invention the invention of nature Humboldt himself certainly um not religious i think i think i remember reading uh somewhere that he uh, was born into a lutheran family but in part because of the colonialism uh that he saw um and the colonialism that was that was happening in the name of christianity he uh he seemed to readily reject um, religious claims. That's my, my cursory understanding of, of Humboldt and religion. But he says something really, uh, really fascinating. He says this, nature everywhere speaks to man in a voice that is familiar to his soul. Nature everywhere speaks to man in a voice that is familiar to his soul. Described as the greatest of the priesthood of nature. He insisted that nature could um, at the essentially the most core level uh, of our being, shape our imagination, shape our inner selves. Um, quoting here, Wolf, nature, he wrote, was in a mysterious communication with our inner feelings. A clear blue sky, for example, triggers different emotions than a heavy blanket of dark clouds. Tropical scenery densely filled with banana and palm trees has a different effect than an open forest of white-stemmed slender birches. What we might take for granted today, that there is a correlation between the external world and our mood, was a revelation to Humboldt's readers. Poets had engaged with such ideas, but never a scientist. Uh, what, what amazing insight um, to recognize that whether it's, it's, it's Genesis 1 and 2 or an observation like this from, from Wolf's The Invention of Nature, um, no, not quoting one of Humboldt's, von Humboldt's 40-plus volumes or however much he'd written, that there is something, there's, there, is a, there is a necessary and fundamental connection between us and the natural world and uh, I understand that in, on one level, it's easy to say, well, that's quite obvious. But when you look at the way we inhabit our, um, the ways we, the ways in which we live and the distance that we put between ourselves and nature, um, I don't know that it is, I think it is a lesson that we need to learn again. And at the very beginning of the Genesis passages on creation and our role in the our role in the universe is something fundamental about our connection, our mysterious communication with the world around us, with the natural order. And so, so to to pivot slightly from this, and to begin to think about what these things might say about God, uh, I'm going to quote Hart, who, again, in in his book, The Experience of God, was a major influence on how I constructed um, this teaching. Uh, Hart communicates the following. God is not a force or a cause within nature. Of course, Hart is really um, doing a little more than framing um, classic theism here. God is not a force or cause within nature and not merely some kind of supreme natural explanation which is where both theists and atheists get it exactly wrong. Western persons quickly acquired the habit of seeing the universe not simply as something that can be investigated according to a mechanistic paradigm, but as, in fact, a machine. Tremendous and very useful insight here. Both theists and atheists, and I would imagine that many of you are well aware with well aware of this, the, the kinds of debates that are happening where, you know, I don't know, you know, you're, you understand well what it is to, uh, um, find yourself in a, you know, down the rabbit hole and like YouTube videos back and forth. And there's, you know, you're seeing who can like one up the other person in the debate. And, uh, I think there's room for that. I'm not trying to 
you know, dismiss that entirely. But on some level, there really is something that's being missed here, which we will begin to unpack. But the, this idea that if the theist can in some way um, prove that God is the the source of creation for the whole material order, then 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 he wins and, and the atheist has a counter and maybe the atheist is going to win. And there's this, this kind of back and forth that happens that I think becomes very unproductive and actually begins to reduce. It does two things at once. One, it begins to reduce God merely to um, what, what the theist hopes is the best explanation. But also it, there's, a, there's a deeper misunderstanding, which is to view, um, to, in, to, to view the world, the, the natural world, the universe, as a machine. Um, and in fact, I think both of these for many re, uh, lead to, both of these kinds of assumptions lead to a disbelief. So um, I, I think many people, after having engaged in those back and forth and either finding neither to be fully satisfactory or um, a materialist view to be ultimately satisfactory, begin to abandon a belief in God. And I think the error is this. Either, number one, God is reduced to the supreme commander of the natural order, running the entire thing from either a throne or, you know, Matrix, you know, the third film, it's like a control center or something. And basically God is is simply the the ruler who runs the show. It's a picture of omnipotence the power of God that I, I think actually reduces the divine sacred nature of God um, as and by making God essentially one being, admittedly the most powerful being, but one being among many beings. And that's where the, and, and the debates begin, right? Because God is actually the one controlling the thing that happens um, on the earth, the thing that happens in the sea, the thing that, that, that happens in space. But then when the, when the scientific explanation comes, um, the debate ensues. But it's a reduction of who God is or this other reduction. And, and by the way, if the first one is familiar to you from your upbringing, the second one certainly will be and may, maybe still is, that God is reduced to the ghost in the machine. God is reduced to uh, a whisper that you have to talk yourself into. And I think, I think even of like C.S. Lewis who offers, I, I find it to be a helpful and uh, encouraging quote. I, do, I don't, I'm going to only be able to paraphrase it, but he, he basically at one point in some, one of his books references that, you know, sometimes it feels like we're listening in on a phone call, essentially, essentially between God and, and, and nature, you know, or maybe between nature and some other part of the natural order, something like that. But like this kind of whisper that we kind of catch a glimpse of. And I appreciate in kind of this poetic way what he's trying to communicate. But but still then God is reduced. Maybe if you're lucky, you'll hear God whisper through something, right? And I'm aware of the Hebrew Bible. I'm aware of, you know, I, I should probably say a couple of things. First, I affirm the omnipotence of God. Um, and I'm aware that um, in the Old Testament, there's, I mean, we have this idea of God speaking in a still, small, quiet, right? Like um, in, in the silence, right? Not in the whirlwind, but in the silence. And I, I understand that those implications are there, but it's not quite what I'm getting at when I'm trying to communicate this reduction of God so that you f- become a Christian, you start to follow Christ, and then... Um, and I don't think it's a, I don't think I'm setting up a caricature or a straw man. I do think this is familiar to many people who have attended um, a church um, in their lives over the years. This idea that like, you're always kind of trying to catch something that God is saying. Uh, this this whisper that you have to kind of hopefully get and get right and make meaning of, and hopefully you got the syntax right. And now you're kind of debating in your head, was that my own thought? That kind of sounded a lot like me. Was that was that when God's speaking and you're, you're, you're and in fact, you, one becomes a believer, but one is still always, we're still kind of looking over our shoulder, um, wondering if uh, we're imagining some kind of communication or if there's something real happening there. And I think both of those pictures uh, do lead to reasons for disbelief or uh, arguably are reasons for disbelief. And both are 
reductions of the nature of God. So I'd like to give you a better picture, a biblical picture, also an ancient one of God and God's uh, and the experience of God that the believer can have through the natural world. Uh, to do that, again, uh, this is something uh, I, I really appreciate Hart's unpacking of this idea, but um, but it's also very, again, a very uh, well-known Aristotle. We'll have to, to do this, we'll have to talk about Aristotle and causality for, for a few minutes, uh, which is this very well-known kind of framework. Uh, and then I think Hart offers a really great treatment of it. But we know that causality is essentially just cause and effect. Um, and here's um, Aristotle on how to understand cause and effect uh, in nature, okay? So I'm going to give you, we're going to go quickly and briefly, but I want to give you four causes, and then we'll um, pick up from the experience of God and add the fifth. So Aristotle talks about the material cause. This is very easy to understand. The material cause is essentially like the primary uh, cause. It is the matter, the stuff from which a thing is made, right? So this is, um, you know, Wherever you're listening to this, it's the, it's, it's the stuff that your steering wheel is made of if you're driving. It's the stuff that you're, it's the type of wood that your table, the table that you're sitting at is made of. It's what is used to make the thing. Very straightforward. It's the material cause. And the material cause has a source. It has multiple sources sometimes. The home that you're in uh, is sourced from many things. And the car that, we, that, that you drive is sourced from many things and so on. Number one is the material cause. Number two is the formal cause. And the formal cause is also really straightforward. These are the attributes of the thing. The formal cause is the attribute or are the attributes of the thing. So the table is flat. The table is solid. The the table is not going anywhere. It would be a very weird universe indeed if when you walk through your front door, you don't know where your table is going to be because the formal cause, the attribute of the table is that it stays exactly where you leave it. Uh, But if your dog, your dog's formal cause is different. If your dog stays exactly where you leave it, that's uh, not, not good news. Number three is the efficient cause. And this will start to, you'll start to notice um, some interesting things about where people place the experience of God across these, uh, across these uh, causes. Uh, number three is the efficient cause. The person who makes the thing and the tools used to make the thing. So if it's the table, it's whoever made the table and what tools were used. But remember, this is not just for for, for inanimate objects. It's also for the elephant. It's also for uh, the forest. It's also for the ocean. It's it, and on and on, big or small. It's at the it's at the macro and micro level. The efficient cause is who makes the thing and the tools used to make it. And what you're some of you who um, are thoughtful, careful listeners, or maybe already familiar with this framework, uh, are already observing some interesting things, which is that at each of these levels, uh, humans engage in worship. And and in fact, I think often, or maybe more clearly, always at these levels, engaging in worship becomes idolatry. For example, um, there are religions that are at once... um, localized, like local religions, as well as religions that might be looked at more as world religions, right, across culture and across time, um, across geography, that that see God or the gods in the material thing. It's it very much, in fact, is the material thing. The God can't be separated from the object um, that it inhabits. You know, the God of... of of a, of a location, of a geography in the ancient world, cannot and will not be separated from from the city that she uh, that she presides over, rules over, demands worship from. The material cause uh, is where many people actually locate God. And to reference um, a prior conversation, it that this gets at the heinousness of idols. Um, it's not that the transcendent God who is being, who is fully love, life, and light, who reveals himself fully in Jesus. This God isn't threatened, not even remotely, by a statue made of wood or stone. But part of the the sin 
um, and the distortion of the idol is that only living things, only living things should represent a living God. And when we make idols, we are, we are su- subjecting ourselves, uh, subjugating ourselves to a dead thing when in fact we are the living image of God. And so you see worship happening at the material level, but before we're too judgmental of that, um, within Christianity, um, we also see the worship of idols. And uh, I think this happens certainly quite by mistake, but it's worth unpacking for a moment. Number three is the efficient cause. Again, it's the person who makes the thing and the tools that are used to make it. Um, And number four, number three is the efficient cause. And number four is the final cause. And you'll start to notice that this is familiar as well. The final cause, which is the purpose of the thing, which is to say, if we go back to like the table, for example, which is to say what, what, people use tables for, right? Like to stack, you know, all of the junk that you have in your hands when you walk through the door, right? Um, to have meals at, to play games at, whatever the thing is. Uh, it's it, The final cause is the purpose of the thing, what people use tables for. And while um, I don't, I, I personally don't see Christians really making the error, error of worshiping God at the level of the material or at the level really of the formal, we certainly see an interesting kind of placement of our our experience of God and the efficient and the final causal levels, which is to say, I mean, and, and again, think back to your own experience of Christianity. I'm aware that uh, there are diverse experiences there and, and diverse traditions, but um, have, are, are any of you familiar with, with a kind of Christianity that connects worship to God with you discovering somehow your vocation or your ultimate purpose or your career or quote unquote, your calling like that kind of thing. Uh, it starts to sound and feel a lot like, um, a lot like some kind of self-helpism. Uh, it starts to really feel very strange where like your worship to God is connected to your excitement about your calling vocation, etc. where, when in fact, I don't know, I mean, do we ever really know that? Um, I mean, have you have you witnessed a lot of altar calls where people come back from the altar and they're um, they're and and they give you the good news that they've been told they're going to be an accountant, <laughs> that they're they're going to be a radiologist. I mean, we know there's kind of a short list of things that people feel quote unquote called to, and often those things have a specific look and um, flavor to them. I mean, are any of these familiar? Um, I don't know, worship leader. Sometimes being on a stage in front of people is people find themselves often called to that speaker. People, for some reason, often find themselves called to that. I I just rarely hear anyone called to being a janitor. It just doesn't seem the the custodial calling uh, ratio is uh, very low. People are called to, interestingly, pretty specific kinds of things and seems quite often um, things that Things that they, I mean, they know the careers they're called to. That's another thing. We often don't hear people called to a thing that they don't even know how to pronounce it, say. No, I mean, people are called to become what? Doctors, um, lawyers, teachers, um, things that um, usually, usually roles that hold some kind of power, have some kind of currency in our culture. And what we really see here is something happening at um, something dealing with the final cause. It's connecting God, our experience of God narrowly and wrongly to a perceived purpose um, that, that we actually really want to bestow upon ourselves. So at each of these levels, there seems to be an opportunity We're talking about the created order right now and how, in fact, God is not the ways in which God is actually not communicating with us. And by insisting that God does, we're actually reducing God to a whisper to the strongest guy in the room. And at each of these these causal levels, we do see an opportunity for idolatry. Hart, in his book, 
Um, of course, he doesn't really unpack th- th- these things, but um, in his book, he goes on to add uh, an ancient Christian, an ancient and medieval Christian concept, which uh, is important. It's the ontological cause. Let me quote directly. The ontological cause, the infinite source of being, the infinite source of being that donates existence to every contingent thing. That's a, a contingent thing is just a thing that relies on something else to be, right? It, it, it ha- it's, the, it's the cause and effect mechanism, right? You're here because of your parents. The building is here because of, of it, the supplies were harvested to resourced to build the building and so on. The infinite source of being that donates existence to every contingent thing and to the universe as a whole, without which nothing, not even the barest of possibilities, uh, not even the barest possibilities of things could exist. The infinite source, this is the ontological cause, and it's at this, it's in this way, and I'll elaborate on this, but it's in this way that we may begin to map a meaningful, true experience of the transcendent God onto um, our lives in nature and in the material world. Again, the infinite source of being that donates existence to every contingent thing. How disappointing it must be to believe in God only if your final cause is satisfactory or makes sense to you. Only if the career shakes out exactly like you want it to. I mean, how, it, it, how sad it must be to not see the good work of God, the transcendent, transcendent being full God, full love, life, and light in nature or through nature, but rather to believe that nature is the home of or prison, in a sense, of the transcendent God. There's actually tremendous beauty and brilliance in this. All of nature is not, at its best, a source by which we might, if we're so chosen or so lucky, hear the whisper of God. And that's really where I think actually many within um, certain uh, branches of Protestantism live. We're just hoping to, to... Catch a whisper, catch an intuition. Instead of this, let me again offer a more, I think, a more biblical and grounded picture of the experience of God. Instead of this, take take a moment to, to do this instead. Meditate on nature in its complexity and in its strangeness and in its beauty, which I should add is not the sentimental beauty of many of the romantics, but arguably more so the beauty of the scientists or the naturalists. And here is what the Bible communicates. That this abundance, okay, so, so to actually slow this thought experiment down for a moment, that the abundance and complexity of nature, of the natural world, is a way by which we know God in our spiritual and sacramental imaginations. See somebody like James K.A. Smith on this. Because this abundance has an ontological wellspring. The abundance you know in nature is the material echo of a cosmology of deeper, fuller abundance, which is the divine. The abundance you know in nature is the material echo of a cosmology of a deeper and fuller abundance, which is the divine, which is the Trinitarian God. This is not God in a vacuum, bored and cold and alone, so let's create a drama. It is cosmologically a spiritual abundance from which all of this, all of the natural world comes forth. You know, it's interesting. I think about um, the people that um, we know through um, the people we know through Center and, you know, various networks, people that you know as well. We're talking about people 20s, 30s, and 40s, and, 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 and sometimes older. We're talking about educated people, thoughtful people, and you tell me if this is familiar, um, if this is familiar to you, if it's an if um, intellectual kind of crutch or habit that you have, a cognitive one anyway. When you imagine 
Trinity, when you imagine God prior the existence of the universe, which we all have done, we've all thought about, okay, God before space and time, right? And I know that the question kind of collapses in on itself and we could, you know, uh, talk about that. Not terribly interesting to me, but you know, we all kind of imagine, okay, so yeah, God before, I get it. And, 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 and those of you who have, uh, who are committed to Christianity, who have grown up in a religious context, you already kind of um, are willing to just acknowledge uh, or admit or something that, okay, I understand that God didn't need us in the sense that um, he wasn't, you know, sitting around bored or something, waiting for something to do. And like, yeah, you know, okay, like, so all of humanity is going to be just this okay, you know, uh, limited television series or something with some ups and downs and it's not, it's not good. It's not, it's not great. It's not terrible. It's, it's you know, it's, it's something that passes the time, like some kind of picture, just like the, you know, God being entertained. Most of you reject that. Of course, not everybody rejects that. Most do. Um, however, however, still yet, when you think about God prior the material universe, is it not true that, on some level, you're still kind of imagining somehow we know we just kind of default as I can't understand. Of course, we can't. But, you know, OK, I understand that, it's, that God is relational, Trinitarian. God's not bored. God's not alone. But on some level, it just feels like a spirit out in space, a spirit out in the darkness, a spirit out in nothingness, in, in a vacuum. Here's Hart. The whole cosmos its splendor, its magnificent order, its ever vaster profundities has been a kind of theophany. This is, this is a manifestation, a visible picture of God, a manifestation of the transcendent God within the very depths and heights of creation. God is the wellspring of all being. God is the wellspring of all being. Let me give you again uh, relying on uh, relying on um, the sacramental imagination, let me give you again uh, s- something a better picture than God waiting around in a void until He creates the earth. How about this instead? And this is where it gets. This is where we have to have a more complex view of cosmology. But what about this instead? And notice how fundamentally biblical this is. It's not God. It's not the Trinitarian God waiting around in 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 the dark. What about this? What about a, a flowing river that is running through the very middle of an abundant and life-filled, a buzzing and humming garden, a river that is gushing through the middle of this abundant, ordered garden where life is teeming everywhere. And for those of you that are not as into hiking or camping or whatever, what about this? By the way, that's of course, Genesis chapter one and two, as you know, what about this? Instead of the Trinity out in the cold and the darkness, what about this? Instead of imagining God before creation in, in the way that you had, imagine God this way. What about this? God, when you're imagining Trinity prior creation, a beautiful river flowing uh, with energy and life, and and that river is flowing through the very middle of an amazing city filled with diversity and interest and music and great food and conversation and the clinking of dishes, right, and and the sound of movement and activity and life. And, and that is a picture of the Trinitarian God in the material world. And that's Revelation, isn't it? Revelation 21, 22. Here's the thing that we have to begin to embrace. Notice how, this, how different this is than the God who's pulling all of the levers, which is a reduction. Notice how the different this is than the God, like we just hope to catch the whisper, which is a reduction of, of the nature of God. Here's what we need to begin to think about instead. And, and again, I, I would just ask that you think through this with me. Imagine the most um, captivating moments you've had in nature, in the city, in the material world, with 
with people and so on. And as you're imagining that and all of the abundance and complexity and interest and beauty, we must understand that that is a material representation. It is a, it is a, it is a material echo. That's, that's, and, and we, we're perceiving it with the senses that we've been given, but we're perceiving a material echo of the deeper, actually more true, more real, fully substantial spiritual reality that undergirds it. Our picture of the material world and it's at its best and in its most abundant is actually the echo of the full spiritual abundance. That is Trinity. Who is Trinity, right? Who is God, the father, the son, and the spirit. Notice how different this kind of experience of God is than one where you see God pulling levers on the one hand and God is just another explanation for the universe, or you're hoping to catch God's whisper on the other hand, where where we're always kind of just guessing. Um, What I'm offering instead is something much more robust. And I think in my opinion, my view, much more biblical, which is a framework for looking at all of the natural world, all of the material order, which is again, um, an outworking of, an overflowing of the, the ontological wellspring that is God, that is being. It, what I'm offering is a framework so that actually you're not having to like hope that you're, you're hearing God uh, in that whisper as opposed to your own you know, thought, psychology, whatever. Actually, with eyes open, you're looking around and all of the universe is, is, this, the, is this theophany to transcendent being, full God. It's with this in mind that we might actually begin to comprehend Romans chapter 8, verse 18. I mean, you know, for all of the interesting conversations uh, that circle around, you know, Romans 8 forward, right, Romans 8 through 13 particularly, and those are interesting conversations. It's kind of a shame how much is lost in making everything about certain debates that surround Romans. But just notice the brilliance of this text. For I consider that the for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Those of you who are hearing this, by the way, and are thinking to yourselves, "Yeah, um, that would be nice," except except nature is also uh, the tsunami. Nature is also the tornado. Nature is also the pandemic. Nature is also the cell. Um, uh, the abnormal cell, like replicating nature is also the diagnosis. Nature is also, and you're thinking about all of the ways that actually nature, the natural world is, is the mechanism by which we suffer. Well, what about Romans eight, uh, verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And it goes on to talk more about this hope, to talk about, to talk about this salvation and having patience toward this. What's being described, um, the natural order, the material world that is being described there is not a machine. It is not a machine. It is creation waiting to be set free. And if we are stewards, if we're protectors, we play a role in that setting free. Uh, one of the best authors, um, 
one of the best modern authors of all time has to be Barbara Kingsolver. Where to begin? Um, uh, read Animal, Vegetable, Miracle. Uh, read Poisonwood Bible. But here's Kingsolver from Animal Dreams. You're thinking of revolution as a great all or nothing. I think of it as one more morning in a muggy cotton field, checking the undersides of leaves to see what's been there, figuring out what to do that won't clear a path for worse problems next week. Right now, that's what I do. You ask why I'm not afraid of loving and losing, and that's my answer. Wars and elections are both too big and too small to matter in the long run. The daily work, that goes on. It adds up. It goes into the ground, into the crops, into children's bellies and their bright eyes. Good things don't get lost. Good things don't get lost. Adam, the soil and the earth and the image of God and the whole thing, an abundant picture of the fullness of God all the time and to find our home in that, to orient ourselves in that. Strike me as, that strikes me as more useful than an answer and more sacred than a whisper. Good things, says King Solver, good things don't get lost. Um, look around you and engage the natural world as a form of worship and as a direct encounter with the Trinity. I'm going to offer four statements that uh, I won't make any commentary on, but we'll just close with these. Um, I suppose kind of practical implications of this of this teaching. Number one, ecological conservation and stewardship is a path to the experience of God. Ecological conservation and stewardship is a path to the experience of God. Number two, knowledge of the natural order is a path to the experience of God. Knowledge. Think back to the Humboldt quotes, right? Knowledge of the world is an experience, is a path to the experience of God. Number three, the aesthetics, which is to say beauty, strangeness, the, the otherness of nature is a path to the experience of God. Both the scientist and the poet. And finally, number four, contemplative prayer through nature is a path to the experience of God. Center. Blessings. We'll talk again next week. <laughs>